0: Hello and welcome to episode 48 of Blokeology, evidence-based health, fitness and lifestyle. Uh, Welcome to this episode. Uh, I'm Dr Ewan Lawson and today we've got an interview with the researcher Judy Chu now Judy is a member of the um, program in human biology at Stanford University and she teaches a course on boys psychosocial development and her research has looked at boys gender socialization their relationships and their development looking particularly at younger boys as well as adolescents as well and she's really Dug into uh, those sort of constructs of masculinity for boys, how they go about their daily interactions, how they view the world. And um, it gives a real insight into um, how boys can kind of you know, develop healthy relationships, maintain their sense of integrity um, and um, particularly under all the societal pressures that are out there. Um, So a little bit more about what we cover in a minute. Uh, Do please, if you haven't already, consider signing up for the Blokeology newsletter. I would be incredibly grateful. Um, And um, it's a real pleasure to send out every Tuesday lunchtime. I send out um, a short email uh, with some evidence-based nuggets that I've dug out, perhaps some stuff that's been in the media, some things that I've been doing. And also, usually, I almost always try to recommend a book or two to read and explain why I think it's well worth getting into. Um, So back to the interview today. So um, Judy and I, we talk about that boy's socialization and masculinity um, and, you know, how we we really kind of get going with this. And I really enjoyed the conversation with Judy. And we talked a little bit about toxic masculinity and whether we should be using that phrase at all. And she certainly has some reservations about it. Something that I've become aware of in recent times that we have to be a little bit careful. Uh, And so that's a really interesting part of the discussion. Uh, We go on and talk a little bit about emotional suppression um, and how boys and young men are, um, what they're feeling, but actually what they're showing um, as well. Um, We talk a little bit about something called the man box, which is this sort of construct that, you know, what does it mean to be a man, whether you're inside the box or outside the box? And it gives a really good insight into how kind of masculinity can, you know, some of the constructs of masculinity, that particular paradigm can affect us and the pressure on men who are inside it to conform to certain behaviours. But we then do, of course, get on to talking about how we can make it all better. I ask an insanely long question, which Judy those are the complete champion in trying to tackle. Um, and uh, we managed to get into some areas about what we can do to, um, to help young men, to help boys and to help adolescents. And there are lessons from that, which I think we then go on to realise are applicable to all men and how we go about our relationships and the importance of speaking to people And loneliness as well. We even touch on a little bit of social media at the end as well. So it's a really wide-ranging conversation. Judy's incredibly knowledgeable about these areas. I started off by asking her how she got into this field uh, and about her initial research. Well,
1: actually, the I was brought in to study boys by boys themselves. I was, um, after I was in, in graduate school for the, for a year, I learned about this woman, Carol Gilligan, um, who is a psychologist here in America, and she's famous for her work with adolescent girls. And, um, basically to keep it, you know, to keep the story manageable. Um, When I went home after that first year, I was uh, driving my 13 year old brother and his friends around all summer because they couldn't drive. And one of his friends, my brother's friends said, Oh, well, you know, what are you learning at Harvard? You know, wanted to know, like, Oh, that fancy school, whatever. And so I said, Well, one of the interesting things I'm learning is, you know, this work about girls, and this, you know, the, the efforts that they're trying to that they're put out there to try to support girls and women, um, girls and women in their development so that they can have more options. And basically this boy said, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, everyone's talking about girls, everybody's worried about them, and they're trying to support them, and that's great. But, you know, boys have stuff going on too, and nobody's talking to boys. So he said, you know, you should study boys. You can start with me. And so I <laughs> said, okay, and went back to Harvard, was taking this clinical interviewing class with Carol, who was my advisor. And she said, you know, it sounds like he has something to say, you should talk to him. And so when I went for the assignments for her interviewing class, I interviewed this boy, he talked for two hours about just things that were going on in his life, things that he was thinking about. And he really kind of helped me to see what some of the questions were that boys were having, um, just in dealing with masculinity, but also just with their relationships and with their development, what they were trying to figure out. And it was so interesting um, that I just, you know, got hooked and was uh, continued to study boys and then l- eventually looked at um an all boys school again with my um my husband saying I don't think any of them are going to want to talk to you why would they want to talk to you because there's this image in America at least of adolescent boys being kind of not really wanting to talk to people about their feelings about their relationships but I went in and to my surprise and to everyone else's I got more volunteers than I had time to interview. I was hoping to get maybe ten or twenty. Um, I ended up ha- making time for sixty-eight, and so they um, they had a lot to say. They had a lot to share, and they were wonderful. I feel like I was just really lucky to be able to be there to to listen to it all. Um, so that's how I kind of I started. I, like I said, the boys in, indicated that they had something to say, and I um, luckily had had the time and resources to listen.
0: Yeah, great. And was this was this the piece of work that went on to become your PhD and also the book that you've written as well when boys become boys?
1: Actually, I collected two two dissertations worth of data because after talking <laughs> to the adolescent boys what I was finding was that they were describing this discrepancy between the way people said Boys are and the way they experience themselves to be. So there's this gap between, oh, boys and men are like this. And they're like, oh, but actually I have much more. I'm much more complicated than that. But what the boys, adolescent boys were describing is you just have to accept that discrepancy. You just have to accept that people aren't going to see you for who you are. And part of, you know, accepting that is part of growing up. That's what maturing is about. And so Carol Gilligan, my advisor said, you know what? You need to look earlier. You need to look at the time when they're still struggling with that, trying to reconcile that. And her um, hypothesis was that what happens for girls at early adolescence, in terms of coming up against heightened pressures to kind of conform to gender stereotypes, was happening for might, might happen for boys earlier on. So, for instance, whereas girls are allowed to be tomboys or kind of pursue a broader range of interests and express you know a broader range of thoughts and feelings. Up until the time they start to exhibit secondary sex characteristics, they start to look like young women, so then they have to act like young women, or what society says young women should act like, boys get those messages earlier. So don't be a sissy, don't be a mama's boy, boys don't cry. Those messages come in around three, four, five. Sometimes I've even heard, it's ridiculous, but people will say it to infant boys. And I'm like, of course babies are going to cry. That's how they communicate. And so it's kind of silly to expect them to conform to these Um, masculine ideals that say men are not supposed to have emotions or they're not supposed to express vulnerability or vulnerable emotions for fear of appearing weak. Um, So anyway, so Carol suggested that I look at the younger boys and that became the main focus of my dissertation um, and and also the the book that I published um, in 2014. But in 2004, I co-edited a volume on adolescent boys. So I have kind of both age ranges um
0: have been of interest to me so yeah so tell me a little bit more about this work with the younger boys what what did you go in and do what and and of course uh, how what what kind of methods did you use it must be difficult chatting to younger younger boys and obviously there's you know how, how not getting parental um i guess um as well on what you discover or you did, did you get just a chance to go in and and, and speak to young lads yourself
1: yeah, absolutely. I actually use very similar, <clears throat> excuse me, similar methods with both age groups. And I think that the adults at the schools that I was at always commented, like, I can't believe you're getting you know, school credit to hang out with boys. And that was, like I said, I was really lucky to do exactly that. So I would start out with what are called ethnographic observations, which is basically, you know, anytime you go into a new culture or a new population, you're just trying to learn about people who aren't you you know, you kind of go in and try to be a participant observer. So I would go to the schools and just kind of watch what was happening during the day. So with the younger boys, I would go and start go right before the beginning of the day. So I'd watch the parents bring them into class. And actually, one of the things that was really striking was the incredible tenderness and affection between the boys and their fathers. And so this came up at the fatherhood conference um, in Ottawa, was that, you know, because the boys were starting to get messages about having to kind of show that they were distant from their moms that they had grown up they're big boys so they don't need their mommies but that message hadn't kind of translated into affection in general so their fathers became the the relationships with their fathers became this um this kind of context where they could express those things and so they were incredibly um, Clothes and they would cuddle and snuggle at the beginning of the day. And it was just a nice way to transition from the home environment into the school environment. And then we ended up interviewing and meeting with the fathers too, because we were so, like Carol and I were so struck by that, that we wanted to know what the fathers were experiencing as they were watching their boys growing up at this time. Um, and then following like, uh, you know, months of those kinds of observations, I then invited the boys to do interviews with me. But of course, four year old boys, we made them kind of play sessions. And so I'd bring some toys and I'd say, you know, do you want to come and meet as a group, you know, with two or three of your buddies? Or do you want to come and meet with me individually? And because there were some um, toys that were more, uh popular. <laughs> Eventually, they wanted to meet individually, they were not as intimidated once they got to know me. And they would come in and say, well, because I want to be able to choose which toys I want to play with first. So they would come in and talk to me and um, tell me about their interactions and what was going on. The boys had actually formed what they called a mean team, which was a club created by the boys for the boys for the purpose for the stated purpose of acting against the girls. And so right. really defining themselves in opposition, because actually, when I Asked about how the mean team was formed, the leader of the mean team said, Well, at first we thought it could be the good team, but the girls are good. So we had, but we, and we didn't want to be the bad team. So we made it, made ourselves the mean team because the girls are nice and the girls are the nice team. And so it's just interesting to watch how they were kind of figuring out how they need to identify as a group and that that was very much in opposite, you know, in opposition to or defined as opposite to the girls and how they would then demonstrate that
0: yeah so i mean i don't know i've not had much experience of ethnographic studies but that whole sort of anthropological approach where you just immerse yourself and i guess the thing that always strikes me is it's that kind of approach that's used when you know when we used to people go off and spend time with foreign tribes in faraway places who we don't understand how their cultures work at all and we try to take that approach to it but i guess that four-year-old boys probably count as a foreign tribe as well in many ways in terms of those 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 interactions that we we mustn't make assumptions about how we think they work and that's maybe what you've delved into isn't it and it's um it's obviously had some revealing insights tell me a little bit about the results and things that you that came out of your study then
1: Okay. So, um, no, absolutely. That was the approach. And I, what I told the boys themselves is I said, you know, as a woman, I grew, I don't know what it's like to be yeah. a boy or to grow up as a boy. And so that's why I'm here to learn from you. And the boys decided, you know, that's a good idea. Yeah, that's important to learn. And so they really took me under their wing, so to speak, and yeah. said, you know, this is what you need to know, this is what you need to understand, you know, in terms of what it's like to be a boy. Um, one Some of the things that I learned from doing that is, well, first of all, that boys have these incredible relational capabilities that are often underestimated and overlooked, both in the um, academic literature on boys and also in their everyday lives. So people really underestimate what boys are capable of knowing and doing in their relationships, partly because those things like, you know, emotional awareness or being able to really be sensitive to other people and consider it. We as a society, at least in America, we tend to associate that with femininity, that that's something that girls and women do and are supposed to be good at. And so, again, kind of in this opposite, you know, when, when we when we define gender as binary, as, you know, masculine and feminine having to be different or exclusive by sex, the boys learn that, you know, that's not valued or at least it's not acknowledged in them and it's not encouraged. And so but what my study really showed was or found, what I found was that the boys, of course, have these relational capabilities that are consistent, actually, with infant studies that show that, you know, all humans are born with a fundamental capacity and a primary desire to establish close, you know, meaningful relationships. So um, that was one of the study findings. But what I, the second finding was that around the age, you know, around early childhood, there was a shift in their relational presence, where as they were learning, you know, what society deems appropriate or desirable for boys and men, they were learning, you know, very adaptively to become more strategic and savvy in their interactions. They were learning not to just wear their hearts on their sleeves, not to just say everything that they were thinking and feeling, because it wasn't safe, you know, in their in in their environment at least in their school environment now at home they you know when they or you know with family members or with people they trust they could still absolutely do this and that's very key to maintaining their health and their you know their mental health but in public situations they were finding that people would say oh you know that's not really something for boys and that was frowned upon and they were you know of course very astute and very much attuned to their social environment and trying to figure out you know, how can I be one of the boys? How can I be with the boys? You know, kind of have the social acceptance and approval um, and learning to kind of um, be more selective about what they revealed and to whom. But the, th- um, the kind of third overarching finding was that despite becoming more savvy and more shielded or self-protective in that way, They continue, and my adolescent boys showed this too, and we see this in men, boys and men continue throughout their lives to seek connections and to resist disconnections. So connections both in terms of to themselves, so preserving a sense of integrity, and connections to others in terms of preserving their relationships. And so they absolutely continue to want those things. But unfortunately, right now, a lot of our social constructions of masculinity Hinder their ability to to maintain those connections. And so really trying to encourage educators and parents and anyone who cares about boys and men to really um, help to enable them to hold, you know, to maintain their connections and develop those because they are essential. You yeah. serve them well <laughs> in
0: yeah. their lives. So. No, I, I'm going to come back to that in a minute, but let me just touch on a couple of other things. Do you, I mean, one of the I've, there was a couple of um, – you've got a little WordPress website with some videos on, and I was just watching those earlier. And there was a quote there from – and Michael Kimmel was on. And there was a quote from him, and I just made a note of it, which was the traditional ideology of masculinity – Is a recipe for early stress-related diseases, unhappiness, and violence. But one, a couple of the videos were all about emotional suppression. And and do you? I mean, my first question is, I guess, and I had a couple here, and I'll try not to forget the other one before I ask this one. Do you think this is really what's going on with boys at the the early age? It's all about emotional suppression. That kind of the way that we're the kind of the approaches of masculinity and how boys are expected to behave is really about suppressing their emotions at this stage.
1: Um. I think, well, I think I would, in in terms of my understanding of suppression, I I would divide that into two things. It's about what you're, you know, if you're suppressing at the level of feelings, I'm not sure that's happening. It's more about um, suppressing at the level of what you're showing. Yeah. So I I usually say that boys' gender socialization um, kind of forces a split between what boys know and what boys show. So just because they're not saying it or showing it doesn't mean they're not feeling it. Mm-hmm. And I think as long as they can continue to you know feel what they're feeling that they're less at risk of some of the some of the um negative health consequences that can come. I usually distinguish between compromise and over compromise. I think in general, we um, and at least in America, the society tends to say, oh, no one should ever compromise. but I think, Anytime you have more than one person in a relationship, you have to compromise (laughs) because no one can have their way all the time. So compromise is actually a part of being with other people and being in society. But overcompromise is the point where you... Don't You no longer know what you want or feel anymore because you're so kind of automatically inclined to accommodate whatever is being asked of you. And I think that kind of dissociation is what becomes dangerous. That's what enables us to do harm to ourselves and to other people. That's what allows us to kind of distance ourselves from our own sense of morality. Um, and I think that that kind of suppression that definitely um, is is not a good thing, um, and and can be very harmful. But in terms of selectively expressing, that's that's just part of you know yeah. socialization. You know, socialization for civility. You know, yeah. So kind of we, we want to distinguish between socialization for civility versus socialization for colonization. You know, and we don't want their minds to become colonized by kind of what society imposes and expects of them to the extent where they don't have, they don't feel they have a choice, or they don't feel that who they really are can be valued. Um. I think as long as they can find kind of protective relationships and niches where they can be themselves, that can carry them forward, even if they have to compromise in other situations. So they can compromise their behaviors without undermining their integrity. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm
0: with you. Let me ask another thing. It's interesting that you mentioned about the connectedness because it's it's hardwired in us, isn't it? That kind of social aspect is almost like the default setting in the brain. The, stu- the neuro studies that now show that we kind of, you know, whenever we stop thinking about anything in particular, we default we tend to default to thinking about our social relationships and there's no reason that men should be any different to women in that regard so it's interesting that you mentioned that we keep coming back to it that despite this kind of process of men becoming very wary about what they share and what they show they do keep coming back to that social connectedness so it remains it remains within men no matter what society pushes on us.
1: Absolutely. And then, you know, like, like you're saying, um, there are a lot of studies and you're, you'll probably be even more familiar with these than others, but that show that even physical, you know, physical health as well as mental health is very much tied to the social connectedness. I mean, things that enable us to take better care of ourselves and other people depend on whether we have a solid foundation of connection to other, you know, people who are close to us. And I'll, there's one, um, study in the, in the U.S. that's been like a 20 year longitudinal study called the Ad Health Study led by Michael Resnick and Dick Dick Udry. And what they found was that the single best protector against all sorts of risks that adolescent face, like, you know, self-esteem, low self-esteem, depression, to social risks like unintended pregnancy, dropping out of school, substance abuse, that the single best protector against those risks was having access to at least one close confiding relationship. And that could be with a friend, it could be with a family member, it could be with a mentor or coach, it could be with anyone. But kids who had at least one were much, much better, fared much better. And in the long term, too, in terms of their physical health and general well-being. And so absolutely, um, social connections are really important. So then what does it mean to kind of make it difficult for boys and men to do that because of the messages that say, oh, you have to go it alone, you have to be tough and stoic and self-sufficient, that actually... gets in the way i think of, the, of their ability or not their ability but just kind of their possibilities of of, of establishing the relationships that are going to be very important yeah. to um, let, let, happiness let, and health
0: yeah absolutely um let me ask you do you uh, there's a, the, the words the, the phrase toxic masculinity is used quite a lot these days and bounced around I, I from your perspective someone researching in this area i, I've, I guess i've picked up slightly different vibes about this and i've heard it bandied around do you think there are problems with its use
1: I think there are problems with it use because it kind of implies that sub- that ma- masculinity is inherently problematic, and by extension, boys and men are somehow inherently problematic. And that's certainly not the case. I mean, there are aspects of masculinity that can be harmful, like you know, violence and aggression when we associate that with being a man. But there are also you know really positive traits associated with masculinity, like honor and loyalty and responsibility. And those are certainly not bad in the least and so um I I I tend not to like that term hmm. at all because I think it it creates a very a defense, understandably creates a defensiveness in boys and men because it seems to imply that you know they're problematic that their development is pathological and that there's their problems to be fixed when that is just I think a really that kind of diagnostic approach like oh what's wrong you know something's wrong with you and we're going to figure out what it is yeah. is just really not the way to go I tend to prefer a more developmental approach which is more you know how, you know, what contributes to who you are and how you feel you're able to be and how, what can we understand that? And I also think that, um, that diagnostic approach tends to, uh, miss a lot of the times boys' relational, boys and men's relational strengths and the, than the things that they do very well. And I think that in order to support them in ways that are practical and relevant to their lives, I think we really need to build on the strengths that are already there. I always kind of conclude by saying, you know, it's not like we're trying to teach boys and men something new. We're not trying to turn them into girls and women. We're tr- really just allowing them to stay with what they already know and can do, but to kind of give them permission to do that because, again, the kind of social messages that they hear, the the pressures to conform to group norms, can kind of move them away from what they are what they instinctively know is best for them and is actually it turns out to be, you know, Best for their relationships as well.
0: So yeah, that's really interesting, and, and I, I've, I've definitely used it in the past, and I've bec- I've become increasingly awkward about it. That uh, perhaps aware that we're, and it's easy to get a bit. There's you know people push back about certainly here in the UK about political correctness, and we must use. But words do matter in terms of what we call people, and labels do stick, and you've got to be careful with it. And I think that's really interesting what you say about the defensiveness, because I think there is a risk that that there is that interpretation that it's men are inherently just a pain in the arse and damaged and they're hurting everyone else and mm-hmm. um and you know they need fixing and i say perhaps as a doctor particularly you've got to be careful because we get very driven down that biomedical model where it's a diagnosis and then a you know there's we hope to some kind of cure and yeah. you know i like to think we're a wee bit more sophisticated than that but toxic it feels a little bit to me like toxic masculinity does play into that
1: right now i think that term has um I, I think that it, it, maybe they meant, you know, if you look at it in terms of, yeah, I just feel like it gets too entangled up, it gets misinterpreted, and it, yeah. and it also just... um on the surface, too, seem to imply something, you know, like you said, that, that that there's something inherently wrong or something just really problematic. And that's just not the best way yeah. <laughs> to vote people when you're trying to support them. Yes, I think that's right. And,
0: and um, I I, had to, I I think you mentioned, I think one of the videos shows you as well, that there are probably as many kind of masculinities as there are men. And it's not just, I think that was your quote, in fact, from one of the videos. And I think that's really sensible. And I kind of a really, you know, th- there's a real danger that certain Certain um, males with certain behaviours get excluded as not being masculine or not being part of their kind of fitting into the box, and that just creates terrible exclusion and inequalities. And it's just, but it's also. I think the important thing is, it's also damaging for those men who are inside the box, if you like, and conforming to because they're always in danger of being. As I think, I can't remember where. If it was yourself that said that, or it was someone else, but they're always in danger of being called out and confronted about that you know whether they're conforming to that behavior was that something that you saw in the boys and in the adolescents during your research
1: um absolutely i think that um that man box which a lot of people have been hearing about is is an exercise that came from paul kivel and um, the way that he defines it is like you know inside the box are the kind of what do you? What does it mean to be a man? And this list of things you're supposed to look, how you're supposed to look, how you're supposed to act in order to be seen as a real man. Um, and then if, and then outside the boxes, what will what will you be called if you're not the things that are inside the box? And so kind of all the insults that are often you know re- associated with femininity. And so what we look at that outside list, they say that those represent the pressures for boys and men to stay inside the box, right? But then you ask, you know, is a boy or man safe? If he's inside the box, absolutely not because, you know, masculinity is precarious. Anyone can call you out at any time. You're wearing pink or you watch the show that, you know, supposedly is for more for women or whatever. So there's a lot of ways that men are kind of pressured to constantly prove their masculinity because it's never secure and you know and and then you're not safe outside the box obviously because then there's all this kind of teasing and harassment and ridicule and so one of my students when we did that exercise in class said you know what it's a trap you you can't win either way and so the only thing you can Hope to do is to opt out of that paradigm altogether, but Mm -hmm. that's also very hard. And so I think that's you know in terms of what you're mentioning about multiple masculinities, I mean that's what we're trying to move towards. There's like a campaign in Canada that tries to encourage men that it's you know my masculinity is mine to define, and I think that's where we want to ultimately get to is to say that there are a lot of you know a lot of different ways to be a man. Like I said, you know, um, as many men as many as there are men, there are ways to be masculine, Mm -hmm. right, and they're all equally valid even if they're not yet equally valued and that's where we're trying to get society to to say you know really as a society we're going to thrive and do better if we can encourage individuals to be who they are and to be what they think is their best you know because then instead of trying to you know make everyone exactly the same which ultimately should, shouldn't be the goal because it doesn't really you know yeah. contribute in in optimal ways and so yeah but um Sorry, was that what you were asking? Yeah,
0: no, absolutely. Uh, Let me, (laughs) let me, let me ask a couple of other things then about that. So, move on to what? How do we make this all better? I guess is the question, and it probably (laughs) is one of the great questions. But it it, it's probably worth thinking about it at a couple of different levels. Um, first thing I suppose is as a parent, and I've got, and you know, and therefore, you know, I have a conflict of interest to declare that I have a teenage boy um, in the house. You know, relatively early teenage, adolescent. So, of course. I'm very aware of that kind of, you know, and like you described at the beginning, the 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 traditional view of an adolescent boy in the house is that he's in America is that he's you know kind of uncommunicative, kind of rather isolated. That certainly has been the case in the UK as well, I think. So I guess the first thing is for for those of us who've got adolescent boys or teenagers in the house, what kind of things do you think? we can do differently to try to help them. So do you think, or, or, I mean, let me, before you, i let you try and answer that because it's an, an impossibly difficult question in many ways. Do you think the whole answer to this whole problem is all about just talking about it more rather than, in, in, rather than anything else that perhaps just having those conversations in society might be enough?
1: Gosh, wow. Those are really great questions. <laughs> um, Okay so I, I'll go backwards I kind try, I try to take note of what some of the things that says I'll hopefully hit everything that you raised but in terms of talking about it more I think um, yes in a general sense as a society we certainly need to talk about it more so that people are more aware I try to remind adults who are involved with boys or who care about boys to remember that everything that all the kind of messages that we put out there, all the beliefs that we have, the assumptions and expectations, those all trickle down to boys. So like, you know, like you're saying earlier, the use of the term toxic masculinity, if the educators and parents are have this concept in mind when they're thinking about boys and men, that affects the boys. And so, you know, any of us who has a platform or is, you know, people are listening to you, I'm always like, say something that will be helpful, because everything we say and do impacts children, um, ultimately, and it, and it ends up kind of Feeding into, if not their self-concept, it becomes at at the very least something they have to deal with as they're trying to figure out, you know, as they're as they're trying to negotiate their own senses of self and their behaviors and their beliefs about how the world works, right? So kind of this sense of like, we're all role models, we're all impactful. A child is watching you. What are they learning? What are they learning about masculinity? Or femininity, or gender, and relationships. Um, so talking about it at at the societal level, absolutely. As also, in terms of with individuals, um, with with boys, yeah. If 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 they're willing and able, I mean, they're able. They're definitely able. But if they're if they're uh, spaces to carve out to do that, absolutely. But I think one of the things that the adolescent boys taught me was that we have to also. In our relation, in our personal relationships, at the individual level, keep in mind that it's not all about self-disclosure. Um, th- that's a very uh, what the boys said was that's a very female model. And sometimes um, the boys what they emphasize was that it's more important that they feel like they could talk to you than if they actually talk to you. I'm not saying that you know you don't have to talk at all, but mm-hmm. I don't I, just to remind parents that it doesn't have to be as chatty all the time. They, when things aren't necessarily wrong. If they're not saying something, and so um, actually, I came up with a construct to try to capture that better because a lot of times boys' relationships were being system. Well, I mean, although they actually do report fewer close relationships and lower levels of intimacy in those relationships, they also are capable of more than more than is suspected. And so I came up with a concept called presence in relationship to, me- to really measure the experience of self in relationship, and not just whether they're disclosing how often and to whom or to how many people. Because when as one of the boys said, you know, sometimes words don't mean anything, you know, I could tell somebody a whole bunch of stuff. And if I'm if my heart's not in it, it's not going to help, you know, it doesn't really show them anything. And so it's not just about kind of this at a, um, not that you would, were suggesting that it's at a superficial level, but it's not just like, oh, if your if your kid is chatty, then that means they're fine. You know, it's more about kind of really connecting, and sometimes that kind of connecting can be done in silence. You know, it's really just joining them, being with them, and having them know that if they need to tell talk to you, you're there and you accept them and you you know you love them no matter what. And so yeah, I mean I have an adolescent boy in the house as well. <laughs> and so and so I know absolutely. And also just adolescents in general, maybe your mom and dad aren't the ones you want to talk to all the time because this is a time when peers are more interesting and mm-hmm. they're gonna go talk. But so but as long as they feel like they have someone and that they could talk if they needed to, that was something that the boys that came up a lot in the adolescent boys interviews. In fact, one boy I asked him, you know, is there anyone who you feel like really knows you and understands you and supports you when you need it? He goes, well, that's my, you know, my mom. And he goes, but don't tell her because then she'll come (laughs) in and she'll want me to tell her everything. And he goes, and I don't really not necessarily want to do that. or I don't have the time to do that. But I know that if it came down to it, and I needed to talk, that I could and I could do that with her and she would understand. And so it's more that feeling of someone, someone's got my back, you know, someone understands me. And feeling loved and supported in that way that is more important than if they're telling you every single detail about every single thought that passes through their mind kind of thing yeah no, that's
0: brilliant and i guess one of the reasons i perhaps garbled that humongous question encompassing how to (laughs) sort out masculinity across the entire human race it was that because i had in my head that i had all these different groups that you know you know, whether it was young boys, age three or four, or adolescents and teenagers, or whether it was fatherhood and and, and being kind of young young dads. But I also had in my head older men, and I, one of the things that was running through my head is, you know, are they a lost cause? <laughs> in so which I, I I think rhetorically that was a rhetorical question. I think the answer is no. The but actually, you may have described already what the right answer is for all men and masculinities, is having someone that you can turn to. That actually, what you've described there for adolescents is perhaps applicable. I, I don't know what you would think, but that might be applicable yeah. to all men uh, and all masculinities. Actually, just having that person there to speak to might be, if needed, is what's required.
1: Exactly. Just any any relationship that lets them know they're not alone in the world. You know that someone else understands what they're going through, even if they're not necessarily going through the same thing. And so um, that's what we were talking about earlier when you mentioned social connectedness. That's mm. what they mean by that. Because that term gets thrown around a lot now because it's kind of trending in terms of what what we need, what people need. But what it means is just kind of, again, feeling, I think um, there oftentimes the kind of having that discussion talking about it at, at the societal level, what that does for individuals is it shows them they're not alone in struggling. That shows them that, yeah, absolutely, everyone is struggling with something at every point in their lives, and that's normal. And so vulnerability that comes with struggling with something is normal. And so mm. to, to try to deny you know, that because we're supposed to look you know in control all the time and we're never supposed to reveal weakness is really a kind of inhuman <laughs> request. Mm-hmm. because it's asking us to kind of, say, deny that part of our humanity. I mean, it's just a part of humanity and a part of learning and growth to struggle to figure it out, preferably with with the support of people that care about you, and then to move on to the next thing. And life is a constant, you know, series is a series of struggles that we need, you know, that we should feel entitled to reach out for help or to offer help when we see somebody else struggling without having to feel any sort of shame or kind of, but the thing is, again, because men are told, men especially are told they're never supposed to show that they're weak, they're mm-hmm. never supposed to be vulnerable, then, you know, again, we're asking them to to do the impossible, um, I think, and that makes that makes life a lot more lonely. And that means the problem also, it blows it out of proportion. And it's not to say that the problems aren't very serious, but they, it makes them harder. It makes them feel overwhelming. Um And to be even acknowledged um, can be very um uh, helpful in the healing process in dealing with things, if that makes sense.
0: No, absolutely. And I think one of the th- interesting, I'll ch- chat, to John Adams, who's a stay at home dad and talks a little bit about fatherhood and things. We were chatting to him on the podcast recently. You know, he mentioned that there's far few people, far few people around for him to talk to that actually wasn't, it's hard. And I guess that's the case for older men as well. And you already mentioned there the evidence that actually men are prone to having fewer social meaning, you know, deeper social connections. And so I guess one of the things we can do in society is just actually we might have to, as well as talking about it, is actually when you perhaps need to go out of our way a little bit to create social opportunities as well.
1: Right, right. And that's one of the things that the Movember Foundation did. I know Mm -hmm. you said that you had visited their website is they're kind of creating casual social opportunities for men to gather. And so sometimes they'll get together to make pies, you know, one Saturday a month, or they'll get together and they'll do some woodworking. And so it's kind of this, You know, it isn't necessarily like confrontational, like come in, sit in a room and look at each other and talk, but just, you know, you're just doing stuff together and that, that can help as well. You know, it's just, again, being in the presence of other people, not feeling like you're alone in the world, not feeling like, you know, you can't possibly, you know, sometimes it can, uh, I think for boys and men and also for some girls and women, it can be very hard to reach out you know, because you feel like, oh, you don't want to bother somebody else, you know, they're already fine, or you don't want to, you know, and and also same thing with, like I said, with offering help, like people will say, oh, I noticed something was wrong, but I didn't want to you know disturb you know i didn't want to interrupt you know invade his privacy and i wanted to respect that and some so sometimes like being in social situations where you're just together makes makes it a little bit it facilitates the chances of just kind of interacting in the ways that can feel very difficult when we're operating more in isolation
0: yeah and i think there's so. some interesting evidence about loneliness and social isolation around that that Actually, you also stop if you're alone, you tend to you're more likely to isolate yourself further as well and to stay away from contact. It's harder to then engage and also, exactly. when you do have social engagement, you don't recognize it as social engagement and you don't you don't appreciate it and value it as much as well so it's a bit of a it's a bit of a sinkhole loneliness once you get go down it's really hard to it's really hard to get out again
1: exactly and so sometimes that loneliness happens in the crowd like you're saying mm. you know people can have you know hundreds of Facebook friends or whatever mm. or followers and but feel like nobody really knows who they are and they can't just kind of be themselves, let down their guard. And that's so important to have, you know, again, just at least one one person, preferably maybe a couple, is just where you can just feel like, I'm just here and it's okay. And I don't have to have, you know, kind of worry about what they're thinking. I can just kind of be. Yeah. It's, it's, Yeah. Yeah, It's kind of a simple solution, but it's surprisingly hard to actually get, you know, in, in today's society.
0: Seeing a lot more initiatives around these days as well, I think, I noticed. And, you know, that Movember doing things like men in sheds is one of them, and they're particularly right. older men. And I, it would be nice to see some of those things for younger boys and adolescent boys as well to make sure they're getting those opportunities.
1: Yeah. And they are funding some of those projects here in the States and also in Canada too, Mm -hmm. where, um, where they just have like things like after school programs or where the boys can just come in and kind of process what they're seeing. I think there was recently on the Canadian news, they showed one of the, um, November funded projects with at working with boys and they were responding to the Gillette commercial, the one about, you know, don't, you know, let's move beyond boys being boys, you know, let's, let's kind of let boys be show you what their strengths really are, you know, much more than the stereotypes suggest. And and so they had interviews with these like 13-year-old boys talking about what they thought, whether they were offended by it, you know, because there's some people that were offended by it. And and they're saying like, you know, I really feel like they're just trying to give us more options is what one boy said. You know, yeah. I th- feel like they're just trying to say that boys can do much more. And so not to get stuck, you know, stuck in these very narrow images of what boys and men are like and what they, what they ought to be. So the boys understood it. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, isn't it?
0: The, um, and um, I picked up a little bit of that controversy around the Gillette thing. I think some of the accusations were that Gillette would really just trying to, ca- you know, were slightly cynically cashing in on a kind of the, the, that kind of masculinity discourse that was happening in society. But um, it's interesting that actually the adolescent boys were like, "That's cool. I'm okay with it. It just gave me more options." So it goes to show that actually maybe it doesn't really matter the underlying reasons why Gillette did it. It was um, it turned out to be turning out to be a good thing for them.
1: Yeah. And I think partly, I mean, because I watched a panel where one of the um, Unilever executives was partnering with, you know, organizations like Pumundo and the Representation Project. And I think that there is a very um, sincere effort at some level because Mm. they're saying, you know, I have adolescent boys and girls and we know that, you know, ads and media make an impact on what they think the world is like and what they think they're supposed to be. And so let's be more responsible about it. And so I like to think or hope that that's that was part of it. I mean, yeah. and not just um, and, and kind of really saying like, you know, because some of the things some of the ads in the past, like with, I don't know if you have the brand Axe there, but some of their commercials were just horribly offensive, mm. you know, to men as well as to women, because again, it's just kind of really stereotypes them presents them in this two dimensional, shallow view. Which most, I think most men would say, gosh, that's really objective and then uh, an objectification of, of men, and that's not helpful. And it really just, again, just if anything constrains what they're able to do in their daily lives because they have this image that they think they need to, leave up to live up to. Yeah. And in addition to that kind of precarious sense of masculinity, you know, precarious masculinity that we talked about, where anyone can, you know, challenge them because they're using the wrong product or wearing, you know, wearing their hair in a, in a whatever way. There's also an unattainable masculinity. That Joe Pleck talks about in, in his 1981 book, Myth of Masculinity. So this discourse actually has been around for decades. Yeah. And what Joe Pleck talked about was that the image of masculinity, the whole be a man image, is ultimately unattainable because nobody can be all those things that were in that man box nobody can be all those things all the time, right? And so inevitably, um, so ter- so what basically happens is men and boys are socialized towards an image in relation to which they will inevitably fall short at some point. And then that falling short can have an impact on how they see themselves as worthy, valued, competent, and it can impact their self-esteem, which of course, in turn can impact how they engage with other people. Because if they feel like they're you know, frauds or falling short, that's going to impact their confidence as they try to engage other people and make it even more difficult to make those connections yeah. that they seek and are essential to their health and happiness. So
0: Yeah. And it's the same nonsense that's been pushed on women for decades as well in terms of body image. And I've certainly said that a lot of times in the podcast, that it's not that, you know, that kind of health and fitness thing, but not being about trying to achieve this six pack kind of, as you say, unobtainable body image that you know that you expect that perfect pecs and that kind of that you know that's just that's not what health and fitness should be about in my book in the slightest
1: exactly i mean and with the women a perfect example is like you know, how healthy bodies can look really different is if you look at the Williams sisters, right, they're both mm-hmm. incredibly fit, but Serena and um, Venus have very different body types. And it's yeah. partly genetic, just, you know, one looks more like their mother, and one looks more like their father. Mm-hmm. And so, th- but they're both absolutely healthy. And so it's not about, you know, for women, like, oh, you have to be thin, and you have to look this certain way, because of course not. I mean, it's, every body is different. And, you know, like, you, you know, as a doctor, I'm sure you know, I mean, just being healthy is about something else than fitting a certain appearance yeah uh
0: absolutely. Yeah, yeah. so let me ask one final thing which is well slightly random and I, i'm not sure if you how, how do you social media and those kind of portrayals instagram or other connections how do you think that fits into this sort, sort of like boys and adolescents and masculinity is there is there is it much the same boys and girls or is there, is there kind of been some differences but particularly masculinity that how that comes across have you noticed anything that and i'm asking partly because i'm just aware that i'm actually going through i've actually just recently given up all my social media total digital 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 minimalism and so I'm really curious as to whether or not there's some specific sort of issues around masculinity with it that you've come across there may not be anything that you've seen
1: gosh I have to admit that I also I've given up all of my social media and I never was very involved with it in the beginning but what I see in terms of um, what I've observed casually in terms of kids using it is I feel like it just exacerbates the problems that have kind of been around you know even when we were growing up I mean the kind of insecurities and the pressures that are normal and typical of adolescents I feel like it blown up. I, I really feel for kids growing up today because it comes yeah. at them so fast and so furious and there's so many sources and and that whole idea of like wanting to impress and wanting to project an image when you have social media it just gets magnified yeah. in, 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 in and so I can only imagine that that just adds to the sense of anxiety and kind of insecurities like you know this moment everybody likes you but the next moment everybody doesn't it, it really intensifies that to in a way that I suspect it, although I've not researched it mm. explicitly I suspect is not very helpful I suspect becomes another obstacle and even the ones who master it, I mean even when you look at some of the you know the famous people who are doing it they all talk you know in their interviews they'll say like oh they have to also shield themselves from the negative responses and the haters and the people who are just out there just trying to, to spread kind of negativity. And so, but for an adolescent to have to deal with that or a child to have to deal with that, it's, it's too much for them. And I wish, I wish we could shield them from it, but I think we can't shield them from, you know, as parents and educators, we ultimately can't shield our children from the dangers of the world. So all we can do is try our best to help them navigate and, and kind of um, uh, figure out how to, how to move forward in it the best they can. And partly by Really, supporting their healthy resistance against the things, I mean, I think one of the um, other findings from my work, but also really that really just confirmed what Carol Gilligan found with adolescent girls was Individuals have a healthy resistance against constraints on their integrity and their relationships that they know they, they naturally fight against impositions on who, what's, what feels normal and natural to them. And so for adults to recognize that and to be sensitive to it and then to join them in their resistance to say, yeah, you know what? That expectation is not that important or not that reasonable. You, if it doesn't feel right for you trust your instincts to really let kids, you know, stay with what they know and trust their instincts. I think sometimes they need to be told that because they're being pulled in so many ways, not only by the people in their lives, but by the media and the social media influences that um, if more important than ever before. We really need to help kids really um, know that, it, you know, kind of foster their self-acceptance and to really be able to stay grounded in what they know and what they feel.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's very sensible. And one of the things I really think that you mentioned earlier about social connectedness was the other thing I would add in that uh, helping them understand, or and this is adults as well as perhaps adolescents and those trying to anyone with social media that the connectedness on social media is not the same kind of social connectedness of um, of having those kind of valued conversations and confidants and having someone you can speak to in difficult times. It's not the same thing.
1: Exactly. No, it's it's. In fact, it's something totally different. I think, (laughs) and I think it's always such a shame when you see like a group of anybody, adults or young people, and they're like together, but they're each on their phones. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. that's such a wasted opportunity. I said, you know, when I tell my son when he goes away to summer camp, I'm like, if you are with your friends, be with your friends. Mm -hmm. You know, don't be on your phones. Don't be, you know, doing games because what you'll remember is not, Oh, remember that time we were all hanging out and on our phones? I mean, you're going to (laughs) remember, you know, being with someone, even if it's just sitting there. You know, watching the sunset or sitting there, you know, watching yeah. a game. I mean, you're going to remember the experiences, and I feel that the ex- the quote unquote experiences that we have on social media are not qualitatively the same or com- even comparable to the experience that we have with people in real life. Yeah. And so, absolutely, those real life connections are are really crucial, and the s- social media connections, if anything, fool people into thinking they they're connecting when they're actually not.
0: Yeah, yeah, I quite so. agree. Um, that has been absolutely incredible Judy. Thank you so much for coming and speaking to me today and thank you for tolerating my slightly daft questions as well. No, no. And it's been it's been absolutely fascinating. You've given such insight. Tell us where can we find out a little out a little bit more about you and your work and everything that you're up to. Oh
1: gosh, I think gosh, I wish I knew what my WordPress address was. I think it's Judy Chu at Word WordPress. Well, I I can tell
0: I can tell you that it's judychu.wordpress.com. <laughs> because I've got it in front of me, but I'll make sure you get a link on the show notes as well.
1: And I guess I'm on, on LinkedIn, so sometimes people can find me that way. I think I'm just Judy Chu there. And, and like I said, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm really, really bad with um, publicizing myself. And then I, I have, a book um called when boys become boys which was published in 2014 yeah
0: um yeah absolutely we'll make sure we get a link to that as well in many ways it's quite wonderful that you're you don't know exactly what your all your social media links are because you've done exactly what i'm doing which is starting to move away from it and doing more valuable things with your time
1: (laughs) thank you so much for having me it's really been an honor and a pleasure to be here with you
0: (laughs) thanks judy Okay, well, thanks for listening. You can find the full show notes at www.blocology.io. You can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blocology at www.blocology.io forward slash journal. Sign up and I'll make sure that I send you the Healthy Bloke Action Plan. It would be enormously helpful if you've enjoyed the show, if you've got anything out of it, if you could pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or just leave a rating that would be incredibly helpful and any feedback is very welcome and so you can leave comments send email or make contact via twitter facebook and the usual social media channels all of which can be found at blokology.io. thanks again